morning, everybody. So good to have you here today. If we haven't met before, my name is Rob, and I am so excited for this last message in our series that we've been calling The Upside of Down. Now, it was many years ago, but there was this day in the spring of uh, one girl's senior year, Rachel. She, was, she had plans to be an actress. She had plans to be a writer. She had actually had plans that summer to go on a mission trip to Africa, and it all came to a point where she had to have this question answered long before that of what she was going to build her life on, what was going to last, and what was going to truly matter. On April 20th, 1999, Rachel Scott was held at gunpoint by one of her, her classmates and asked to renounce Jesus. And she said, no, I can't do it. No, I will always be someone who loves Jesus. I will be a Christian. And that has inspired others. That, that reminds us that persecution happens. But it also reminds us what truly matters in our life. You know, the, the former CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishing, Mike Hyatt, he wrote this uh, a few years ago. He wrote, I have met very few people who have a plan for their lives. Most are passive spectators. They watch their lives unfold a day at a time. They might plan their vacations. They might plan their careers. They might even plan their retirement. But it never occurs to them to plan their lives. Now, I don't think Rachel planned that day to give up her life. But she had prepared along the way that persecution was going to happen. She had prepared along the way that she needed to make certain decisions in life in order to see God do and move and respond to him. And God calls us to do the same thing. And we get so bombarded in our life. We juggle all these pieces of our life. It's all we can do to put things in little compartments and take on the complexities and the technology and the, the demands of our work and, and of our lives that, that many of us just end up in this place where we feel like we're frantically moving from one thing to the next, juggling a spouse or our kids or juggling a job and a house and friendships and activities. And, and when we look back at our lives, if we, if we move out from them, and we just take this objective view. A lot of us don't look any different than the people who don't have Jesus. And I don't say that with any judgment. I just say it as a reality in so many of our lives. But see, Jesus came and he lived and he died. And he rose again for us to be able to live in his kingdom not without our efforts, but in his love and his graciousness and his sovereignty. He is setting up this, this plan, this restoration project that God started a long time ago, that one day there would be no suffering, and one day there would not even need to be a sun and a moon because the glory of God would fill the earth and the heavens and the earth would, would be new. They would come together in such a way that we would live with him in joy, with celebration, with worship all the time. And we're invited to do that now. We're invited to step into that today. 
and he invites us to be part of that plan, to work for that and serve for that and live for that. And, and we've got to make the choice of how we're going to live. We've got to decide and plan for it. If we want to be restored with Jesus, if we want to see true hope in our lives and through the world, then it's going to take a transformation. But God has started the work, and we simply respond to him. And that transformation just starts with becoming Christ-centered people and then becoming Christ-centered leaders and then starting more Christ-centered churches. Now, I use the word Christ-centered because as as a society, we've kind of lost what it means to be a Christian. Our, our culture doesn't even really know how to define the word. Most of us would, might struggle with defining the word. Certainly those that aren't Christians would struggle with defining the word. And yet, if you look at recent surveys, 75 to 80% of the population would still identify themselves as Christians. And yet their lives don't look any different from a... Uh, uh, the rest of the world. And so for years and years and years, we've had a society, we've had an American society that, that has looked very similar to what we would call Christian values. But as our society becomes less and less Christian, it's this opportunity for us to look very, very different. And I would say much more like Jesus. See, a cultural Christian would say that they believe in God, but they would live like he doesn't really exist. Um, A cultural Christian would would hope for heaven, but really focus on all the stuff of earth. A cultural Christian would pray to Jesus for the big, big stuff, but, but live really discouraged and disillusioned in all the little stuff. If you were to kind of summarize it, you might say that for a cultural Christian, God is just a little piece of their lives. And, and if you are thinking, well, that really describes me, it's okay. Let's just keep going. Sometimes it describes me. But see, being Christ-centered means that, that Jesus isn't just a piece of our lives. He's the very center of our lives. He fills our lives. We say it like this because... Being Christ-centered is the first value that we said was going to mark this church when we started. And that meant that Jesus just wasn't important to us on Sundays, but he was important every day, every moment, every hour. We would think about him, and we would want our lives to be filled and flow in him. And so for Christ-centered, it really means that we live for him, and we live through him, and that his purpose becomes our purpose, that his values become our values. And if that's the case, then the way we treat people would look different than the way most of the world treats each other, right? And, and the way that we parent, if we're parents, would look different. And, and the way we spend money would look different. And uh, the entertainment we consume would look different. And so we come to this last beatitude, if you've been in church before, this last statement of of eight statements that Jesus makes as he describes what his kingdom is going to be. And he says, this is is my kingdom that God is doing in me and through me, and it's coming. And this is the kingdom of the world. And and here is this one that, that is probably 
has the most reality and the most reward that is tangible than any of the others. So if you have a Bible or if you want a Bible, just raise your hand and someone would bring you one. It's really cool. Try it. But if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 5, chapter, or ver- chapter 5, uh, verse 10. And Jesus describes his last value, if you will, in his kingdom. He says this. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them, or for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're Christ-centered, this just means simply that you will be persecuted. Praise God. Isn't that great? You came for, like, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit. It was really hard to hear. It is well with my soul. I thought about some things that, that are, I'm just really hurting, and now you're telling me I'm going to be persecuted. Yep, I am. Yep, I am. But think about it. If, if these are the values, let's just review in case you weren't here. If, if you're Christ-centered, if you want to live in Jesus' kingdom, you're going to be persecuted. So let's go back to the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In, in a world where Jesus says it's so valuable to need God, we live in a world that values affluence and values self-reliance. It's going to look different. Jesus wants us to mourn, he says, and, and we live in a world that values pleasure and comfort. Jesus wants us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and we live in a world that values discontentment and accumulation. Jesus says he wants us to be merciful, that we should value that, and, and we live in a world that values keeping to ourselves. Jesus says he wants us to be pure in heart, and we live in a world that values impurity. Jesus wants us to be peacemakers and we live in a world that values just kind of keeping the peace. And Jesus says, I want you to value when you're persecuted because of righteousness. For doing the right thing, for, for living in the way of Jesus, for living in his kingdom, we would call it for being Christ-centered. He goes on to say it like this. It might seem odd to you, but verse 11 says, Blessed are you when people insult you when they persecute you, when they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. In fact, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I don't know how this has played out in your life or how it will play out in your life, but when you decide to have Jesus as the center of your life, these things happen. It happens Um, in my life in a couple of ways. Um, My wife and I decided when we got married, we heard a powerful message from the Bible about how we should live this 10-10-80 principle, that we should give 10% of our money to God, that we should save 10%, and that we should live on the remaining 80. And for some reason, these two people who were young and dumb, but in love, and they love Jesus, they just said, yeah, we're going to do that. And it was hard to do that. In fact, we were barely scraping by the 10% to save, and, and my wife was finishing grad school, so we met with this financial planner, and he sat down with us, and he started looking at our numbers, and he, he made a few comments, and then we went back to him again, and we kind of sorted some stuff out, and we went back again to kind of finalize it, and he's like, you know, I just can't figure this out. You can't live on your 80%. You're not saving 10%, but you're still giving 10%. I really think that God would be okay with you not doing that. And we said, no, no, we can't do that. And he eventually stopped working with us. 
Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you. You know, in our last neighborhood, it was just before winter when we moved in, so we didn't meet very many people. But when we started to come out, word got out in the spring that I was a pastor. Yeah, so eventually what that meant was that people stopped inviting us to the neighborhood parties because there was a lot of alcohol consumed at those parties. And for some reason, they thought that the pastor would somehow judge them for their consumption of alcohol. And so we were persecuted. I think back to when I was an RA, a resident assistant um, at my college, and for some reason they decided during our training that they were going to have these value assessments that we were going to have to do in groups. And so they had these stack of cards. There was about 24 cards, these values that we had to choose from, and five of them were absolutely Christ-centered values. And for four of these RAs, at least four of these five ended up in our top five. Now, I thought at the time, like, I'm 20 years old. I'm not really very smart. And so I'm like, this is a way that I can totally share my faith. Yes. And every one of us was persecuted that year. Two of those four people ended up losing their jobs through kind of some little bit squirmy circumstances. And Jesus says, blessed are you when people falsely say all kinds of things, all kinds of evil against you because of me. And, and these are not gigantic things. There, there are Christians in the world that have gone through and go through much worse. But you might be thinking, well, that's because you're a pastor and you're a little weird. I'll give you the weird part. <laughs> but these things had very little to do with me being a pastor. In fact, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and you look at the first instance of persecution, you find it in Genesis 4. Genesis 4 tells the story of the first two kids from the first two humans that are really made from God and with God. And, and this idea of righteousness really means that we're living right with God. We're, we're doing the right thing in God's eyes. We'd be, we might say it as we've been saying it in this series as living the way of Jesus' kingdom. We say it in our values as we're Christ-centered. But, but this idea of righteousness is that we do the right thing. And we see in Genesis 4, these two young men, Cain and Abel. Cain is the older one. He brings an offering because he's supposed to. Abel brings the best of his land and his grain and his work. He brings it first, and he brings the best. And that's what God asks. And he does the right thing. He doesn't talk about Jesus. He's not bringing up the scriptures. He's not saying a word to his brother. But when we do the right thing for God, people get uncomfortable. They don't like it. Why? Because each of our hearts have been pulled away from God. We want to live independent of God. It's not because all of us are, are out to kill Christians or kill the spirit of what it means to live in Christ. It's often just because we want to do our own thing. And God comes to Cain and he says, Cain, you're angry. Why are you angry? I don't want to talk about it. Don't let your anger get a hold of you. And he kills his brother because his brother was doing the right thing. This is not because we talk about Jesus. It's not because we're a pastor. It often, often is just because 
We're trying to live right with God. There are sometimes now we suffer and it's because we're not doing the right thing. Some people call that consequences. They're usually parents. But we can just as much suffer for doing the right thing. We can be persecuted. And if you have friends that don't follow Jesus, the more they hear about your suffering, the more they're probably going to say things like, hey, how's that Jesus thing working for you? Or, gosh, it doesn't sound like your faith is really giving you what you want. You sure you want to build your life like that? You sure you want to take that plan? And it's in those moments that we have to stop and we have to remember that Jesus and his kingdom is the one thing that will last. It's the one thing we see go through all of scripture and will go through all of eternity. And when we place our life there, when we build our life there, we aren't going to fit in. We aren't always going to be accepted. And we're going to face persecution. So, is there something we can do? Is there a plan we can have? Is there a way we can prepare? Fortunately, there is. Jesus says it here. He says it a little bit in a couple stories that we'll come to. The first way that we can prepare for this is just to expect it. If we're Christ-centered people, we can expect persecution. In fact, 1 Peter 4, 12 says it really clearly. He just says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if it's something strange that is happening to you. In other words, if you're a Christ follower, if you're living centered in Christ, this stuff is going to happen. Jesus says it this way when some of the religious leaders aren't really, they're kind of confused on what he's doing. In Luke 14, he gives these two pictures, these parables. He says, one of them, suppose one of you wants to build a tower, a watchtower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to build it, then everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began a building and was not able to finish it. Remember, Jesus lived in this honor and shame culture, which is different than our guilt-innocence culture. When we do something wrong, it's like, oh, you're innocent until proven guilty. Well, in the honor-shame culture, you brought, you brought down your family name, you, you were shamed, this thing sitting out in your field, this tower, this watchtower, because they were a lot cheaper to build than fences. So people would build these watchtowers. If this was half done, people would look at that and they would shame you. And this is something that they would do in their culture. And so he, basically Jesus is saying, well, you'd first estimate the cost, and then you'd see what resources you have available, and then you'd focus on the reality of what it was going to take to build it, the reward you have if you did, and the possible reality if you didn't. His point was that no farmer would build this thing. They wouldn't even start it if they couldn't finish it. Jesus tells the second story, as suppose a king is going to go to war with another king, won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able to take his 10,000 troops and go against the 20,000 troops? For if he is not able, Jesus said, he will send a little delegation to the other while they're still a long way off, and he'll try to come up to a terms of peace, a peace treaty. In the same way, Jesus says, those of you who do not give up everything cannot be my disciple. 
sort of seems like those things might not be related, but if no farmer's going to build a building, not even start it, if he doesn't count the cost, and no king is going to go to war, I mean, that's just going to bring personal shame for that farmer. But think about the king. If, if the king goes to war, yes, if he wins, he gets honor, he might have peace in his land. But if he loses, troops die. His kingdom is an in insecurity. And, and he brings shame on his name. I mean, the stakes all of a sudden got a lot higher. What's Jesus' point? Jesus' point is that no king would risk the death of his troops, the loss, the shame, and the ridicule if he didn't first count the cost. And Jesus is saying, hey, count the cost. If you want to put me first, it's basically saying you have to give up everything else. So if we're going to put Jesus first, it means that we're going to risk family, friends, and, and our own life. If we put Jesus first, it means that, that he comes, his allegiance and our allegiance to him comes before our allegiance to our family. It means that, that for some of us, we might sit down at Thanksgiving dinner and ask to pray and have people make fun of us. But we can still pray. It, it means that if Jesus first in our money, it changes the way we manage our money. It, it means it shifts the focus from being self-centered to being Christ-centered. We have to expect persecution. You might make the decision to live for Jesus and all of your friends are going to go to a movie. And it's supposed to be a popular movie. It's got a little bit of violence or it's got a little bit of sex. And you decide, you know what? I'm not going to do that. It's just not going to glorify God. So you get to the movie and your friends decide and all of a sudden you're like, nope, I'm out. I'm not doing it. And so as you drive home, they just start texting you and ridiculing you and making fun of you and they stop talking to you. Jesus says, just expect it. Or you make the decision to live for Christ and be Christ-centered in your relationships and you decide, you know what? I'm not going to have sex until I get married because God would really be honored by that. I could glorify him by that. I would love to be able to stand up on my wedding day and say, I've had no one else to compare with you. I can't wait to be with you. I've waited to be with you. Or from this point forward, I know who Jesus is. I'm not going to do this. And, and all of a sudden, your friends make fun of you. And your friends call you weird. And they mock you, and they put, like, photoshopped pictures of that old movie, 40-Year-Old Virgin, on your Facebook page. And, and Jesus says, expect it. Or we could go really radical, just trying to offend across all lines here now. You know, I was... It, a couple years ago, there was this group of people that wanted to, to take back Sundays, and that was their rally point. They wanted to get sports off of Sundays, and so the, the group wasn't intentionally started for religious reasons, but there was a lot of people of faith that were a part of it, and, and they were working really, really hard for a lot of months to try and get sports to stop going in these leagues to stop practicing, and guess what? It didn't happen. No, the kingdom of the world values success too much to drop a day for competition or to drop a day for practice. Jesus says, expect it. In fact, you might be a family that would say, let's be radical and, and be at church and worship God instead of being a part of that league. Watch out, because even Christians will question that. We've got to remind ourselves of what will last. And Jesus says, 
Great is our reward. We can rejoice and be glad. Great is our reward in heaven. In the same way, the prophets were persecuted. These people who spoke and lived for God were persecuted. And you probably will be too. And I probably will be too. And we can keep going past that expectation. That's what this pointing to the persecution of the prophets means. By enduring persecution. If you're Christ-centered and you're taking notes, Christ-centered people can endure persecution. In fact, Acts says it like this. Was there ever a prophet that the ancestors did not persecute? And this other, this other passage we've been looking at, Peter, as he says, don't be surprised about this fiery ordeal that will come to test you. He says, but, but we can rejoice Verse 13 of chapter 4. We can rejoice as we participate in the sufferings of Christ. In 14, if we're insulted because of the name of Christ, we're blessed. For the Spirit of God rests on us. In fact, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or a criminal. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God. You bear that name. See, in America, we almost have to uh, make this hypothetical for us because our persecution has been relatively minimal. But as America becomes less and less Christian, the persecution will ramp up. I have a friend who lives in Jerusalem with his family, and he's a follower of Jesus, and he shares his faith with Jews and Muslims. Okay, first of all, just stop there. He's in Jerusalem as an American Jesus follower and he shares his faith with Jews who can arrest him or kill him. And he shares his faith with Muslims who can kill him. And he does this because he wants to participate with Jesus in what it means to give something that will last to people that don't know it. And his little kids are there, and his wife is there, and they pray all the time, and they had bombs dropped closer than they've ever been dropped before, and they just had a Jewish priest or Jewish rabbi who was trying to get the possibility that in this sacred piece of land that Abraham had, that that the Muslims have been controlled for 1,400 years, he just wants Jews to be able to pray by there. And he was shot and almost killed. This persecution happens. It happens all the time. We've got to endure it. We've got to go through it because because it's just a small amount when we think about what Christ did. We can endure it because Christ says that he is with us in this. He says the Spirit of God rests on us when we're suffering. And like I said, in America, we have very little of this. So what can we do? Well, it might mean that we just give ourselves little doses of it. If we have children, it might mean that we prepare them in these little ways, prayerfully, prayerfully, but strategically. You know, when my my kids were in first and second grade, they would politely ask the neighbor kids if they wouldn't swear. I mean, they were all like four to seven years old. And so we're playing in the yard, and they're like, could you please not swear at us or at, at the other kids, you know, while we're trying to play this game. And they're like, what well, do you care? Why c- we can do whatever we want. Well, in, at our house and in our yard, we, 
we want to be positive with each other. We want to speak good things. I don't know how they said it at six. My, my, my daughter's pretty intelligent, though. Both of them. Sorry. Anyway, the point is that eventually, eventually the kids just kept doing it, more sneaky, and then they would go play at someone else's house, and then all of a sudden my kids weren't allowed to go there. And as frustrated as I was about that, as that was hard for us, it's really important for us, and it has been really important for us to remember that this develops endurance in them, just like a running a marathon. You don't start out running 26.2 miles. You start out by running three or two, or you get off the couch and go for a walk. I mean, this is the same kind of idea. And, and some of you know that our kids spent time in their first years of school in private school, and I've never told you where to go to school. I've never told you where to send your kids. Every family's unique. Every kid's unique. You know, but we had our, our kids in a, a private Christian school. And recently, they're not there anymore. And I have gotten to have the most amazing conversations with my seventh grade girl at her middle school because she now stands out. She now sees that because she's a Christian, she's different, she's marked, people make fun of her. And again, we are so prayerful about this, but it is so good for my daughter to develop that. If you are under 25 years old, you will experience persecution, I believe, in a way that you've, we've never experienced persecution before. We've got to be ready to endure it. Jesus said it this way in John 15, 20. He just said, a servant's not greater than his master, and if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So if you've made the decision to follow Jesus, for example, and you're going to a school and, and it's hard, then you get to whine about it. Amen? No. Or you make the decision to get out of debt and now you're driving a really bad car, a really old car, it's got some rust on it, or you're not going to good dinners, or you can't go out to a movie. And, and Jesus says, oh, well, if you're doing that, then it's okay to whine. No, it's not okay to whine. You... Endure it because you want to live right with Jesus. You don't want to be strapped to that new car payment. You don't want to live under the burden of the credit card envelope coming every month saying, why aren't you paying? You want to live free. This deepens our faith when we go through persecution. When we go through this and when we can see people see the gospel in us, we are marked with belonging to Jesus when we endure we are reassured that our faith is real when we endure. And if you look through history, every time the church was persecuted, it grew faster and it grew stronger and it was more unified. I kind of want more persecution in my life. The last thing we can do is we can embrace it. If we're Christ-centered people, we embrace persecution. Jesus says it. When people insult you and they, they persecute you and they falsely say all kinds of evil, rejoice. Be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. It takes our eyes off the stuff of this earth that's not going to last anyway, and it puts it in heaven. It puts it in the kingdom. It puts it on Christ who will last, who loves us, 
who died for us, who sacrificed, and he didn't need to. He was righteous and perfect. You know, Paul, Paul, this writer of this book and this letter to the Romans says that, you know, I can understand if someone was going to die for an innocent person, but Jesus was innocent. He died for all these guilty people. He was persecuted for doing right. In some small way, we get to participate in the suffering of Jesus when we're persecuted. Peter said it like this, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. That's hard for me, guys. I'll just be honest. And this was said to a group of people that would have the Christians arrested, put in a coliseum, chained, and then have lions come out and tear them from limb to limb. And these people were saying, no, I'm going to rejoice. Jesus, if he doesn't save me right now, I know that he's going to save me later. And people see it. And they go, that has to matter. We embrace it. We have to embrace it as a church. It unifies us as a body. It strengthens our faith as individuals. We shouldn't be shocked or surprised when we're persecuted. In fact, I would say it like this. We, we need to be shocked and surprised if we're not being persecuted. Because then we probably look way too much like people who aren't following Jesus. Not very many people knew Rachel Scott, the aspiring little writer in Columbine High School. But after her great persecution... The world knew Jesus and Rachel. Why is it well with our soul? Why can we sing that even in the midst of tragedy? Because if we are with Christ, really, truly, we are at peace with God. And the only thing we have to do is say yes. Where do you see persecution in your life? Where can you expect persecution? Where can you embrace persecution? And what do you need to focus on so you can endure persecution? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this hard hard reality. Forgive us when we've been too consumed by the things of this earth that we look too much like people who don't know you. And God, I don't, I don't say that with any judgment. God, I, I'm in the same place as anyone else. I need you, Jesus. Some of us in this room, we have said yes to Jesus, but we realize that we have said yes to Jesus in name only. We know Jesus, but we're not living Christ-centered. We're not living by the power of your spirit, God. When we face persecution or hardship, we turn our back as easy on you, or as much and as fast on you as, as we have on other things. And, and we say, I'm sorry. 
we will turn and face you. We will put our life in you. We will give our life to you. We will let all of our relationships filter through you, God, because you're first and you're center. The way we treat our, our, our spouse, if we have one, or our kids, if we have them, will be filtered through your, your spirit, Jesus. The way we look at others, even across this room, will be through your eyes, Jesus, because you're the center. The next time we walk into a business deal and it looks shady and unethical, but, but everybody does it, God, we put ourselves in you and we know that even if we're persecuted for righteousness, we will be with you. We will stand up for you. And some of you just aren't even sure where to go from this moment. Because you're looking at all the ways that, that you're suffering right now. And it's not okay that you're suffering. But I pray you can embrace it. And you can see it as this place and this spot and this way, this opening for Jesus to be real in your life. Because we want to be about the things that will truly last. Life in you, Jesus, will truly last. God, we've asked in this whole series what we want the end of our life to look like. We want what we want the results of our life to be about. And that's about you and about your kingdom. So God, show us what practical next steps we need to take. Maybe it's getting in a group and studying who you are. God, maybe it's developing a friendship with someone to say, I, I just, I, I need to learn how to pray. And you, I know you pray, so help me, please. Maybe for some of you, it's rearranging your finances in a way that, that honors God or getting out of debt. Or in those moments where, where you're frustrated with your life, where everybody's demanding pieces of you and you come home and you, you're about to yell at somebody you care about desperately. You stop and you say, I am in Christ. I will not let the demands of my life and the, the things that I suffer outside my house affect the relationships inside my house. Jesus, you're big enough to handle all my stuff. Have the courage to give it to Jesus. He is big enough, strong enough, and he loves us. And if you've never, ever said yes to him, I encourage you to say yes. It'll make all the persecution worth it. Because he'll pay for all of it. His, his sacrifice will be enough 
for you and for me and for us.